Next Chapter Podcasts. The 500. The 500. J.A.M. been walking us down through that 2012 edition, so it ain't nothing to new. Hundreds more to go and in need of a friend. The king of these for Angelo. Talking the 500 until the end. Talking the 500 until the end. With my man J.M. On the 500. Talking the 500 until the end. is Cross the Breeze. It's by Sonic Youth from their 1998 record Daydream Nation. It's also number 328 out of 500 on the 500 with Josh Adam Myers. Uh, What is going on with everybody? This weekend, I will be at the House of Comedy in Arizona. I think it's Scottsdale, maybe Phoenix. Uh, But I'm doing six shows there. Then... I will be doing uh, the Aspen Snowmass, Colorado. That's right outside of Aspen, March uh, 8th and the 9th. Then I will be in Connecticut, April 9th. I'll be doing a goddamn comedy jam. March 15th, I'll be doing a goddamn comedy jam in New York City. Uh, March 21st, I'll be doing a shimmy shimmy ya at the comedy store. And in April, we'll be at the Nashville Comedy Festival and we'll be at Moon Tower. You can get tickets at joshadammyers.com. Follow me at joshadammyers. All right, Sonic Youth, everybody. One of the most influential rock bands uh, of the 80s and 90s? I think so. And guess what? We have singer and bassist Kim Gordon. I'm leaving it blank so you guys can add applause and shock at how fucking dope that is. Uh, We were scheduled to do the interview with Kim uh, while I was still in New York City. And then, uh, unfortunately, something happened. We had to bump it uh, to now while I'm in Los Angeles. And I had a lot of technical problems uh, with the equipment. So uh, what we have is what we have. And uh, I couldn't be more excited because this was great. It, I think it took a minute for her to like warm up to me because I'm such a weird energy. Uh, but once we got rolling, this was a lot of fun. Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to The 500 and listen free on all platforms. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Go to joshadammyers.com for all tickets. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. Follow the Facebook group run by a crazy dude named Evan. And for all things 500, go to the website that I hate more than anything in this world, the500podcast.com. Well... Here we go with 328. Daydream Nation by Sonic Youth Youth. You want to talk about Daydream Nation with me? Sure. All right. So so let's jump into it. All right. So, so what was going on with Sonic Youth uh, before this record uh, was being made? Like before you even started writing it, like where was the band at? So, um, I mean, we basically, we're a bit frustrated with our, um, I guess, distribution. You know, we had um, a label in England, Blast First. And then we, we had, um, well, then we were on SST. And uh, Paul Smith from Blast First made a deal with um, Capitol Records. Um, so we thought things were going to be better, you know, distribution wise. Um, 
anyway, so and every time we made a record, we seemed to be switching up rehearsal spaces. Um, for this record, we kind of crazy. We, I believe, wrote it in this really, um, this basement that was about in a building in Olita that they used to build ships in. And it was, I, we were like two or three floors underground or something in this nice. kind of hideous space for all these bands rehearsed. It was a long, narrow space and each band had like their little space. Uh-huh. But I don't think there were any, uh, there were no walls. It was just like scheduling. <laughs> and anyway, um, we started, I think, rehearsing first in this, no, that was another record. Anyway, so we basically yeah, wrote the songs, most of the songs there. And then at some point we had to leave that space. And we ended up using the uh, Blasker's office, which was upstairs in the building. And we wrote actually, um, I think we wrote maybe the sprawl there. It's either we wrote the sprawl there or Teenage Riot. Whatever it was, it was kind of like a, a major song. Yeah. And since we were on this kind of not exactly a major label, um, it was we had a little more money to record. And we decided to um, go to Green Street, which was a studio that I believe Phil Glass owned. And... They did a lot of hip, they did major, some major hip hop there, like Public Enemy had recorded there and that really excited us. Uh, So we ended up recording with an engineer who (laughs) had never recorded guitar music before. Nick Santano. Uh, Yes. Okay, guy said it right, yes. (laughs) Um, And I forget what the board was, it was a great analog board. There were two rooms, one was like an analog, board and the other was like a super high-tech room where they just basically mixed stuff it was like a might have even been a 48 track or something so we recorded there and it was somehow like it worked because our music like maybe nick understood the density of it and so it was a bit like um rap music or specifically maybe Public, Public enemy. enemy. Yeah, I, dude, it, it's so because my first thing was when I read the thing about how you worked with Nick and Nick, you know, had primarily worked with all these different hip hop acts, especially Public Enemy. I was curious, did did it just luck into it where he was there or was it like you did he pitch to you or because I could see like a producer and an engineer being like, "Ooh, I've never worked with a guitar sound. I would love to see how I could do with that. Yeah, no, no, it, it wasn't like that at all. It was really like, um, <laughs> we were just, um, we were just really excited to be working in what was a more sort of we felt professional recording situation. Sure. Yeah, for some reason, it didn't bother us like that he'd never recorded or may- maybe we didn't even realize it. Um, it was weird that during the recording, he was like, you know, it would be great if you could just wear a gigantic clock, Kim, and keep asking what time it is. <laughs> well, it was a, it was funny uh, hanging out there because the waiting room was quite small. And yeah. um, when Public Enemy was working in the other room when we were there, uh, sometimes Chuck would be waiting for Flavor Flay for like 48 hours to show up. And you would just hear his like floppy feet coming down the steps. <laughs> and he would just come in with like, you know, sort of an entourage. Wait, did, wait, did, please tell me that when you finally got to meet Flavor Flav, he was like, yeah, boy, just all flavored out. But I don't think, you know, he really cared who I was. <laughs> I mean, I was just like, a, you know, like some white chick sitting there. <laughs> like, I don't think he knew anything. You know, it was more like he was probably thinking about um, being hounded for alimony. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's got real life issues. You know, he had, Always had uh, lots of excuses, I guess. Yeah. Anyway, um, but he was clearly like a, an important figure <laughs> uh, in the, for the band. So um, he was worth waiting for. 
anyway, we, um, so we, yeah, basically, I don't even remember how long we took to, I'm sure if you interview Nick, he can tell you so much more about what yeah. happened than I can. I wish I could interview Flava and Flava was like, man, they were in there for about four and a half weeks. I would dip in. The music was flowing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we also had like a tight deadline. I remember we were um, remixing Cool Thing. We stayed up all night and then went up to the mastering session. Because we had like a, we had a deadline, you know, for, for getting that done the record coming out on the tour and um so yeah basically um we didn't you know we probably did like um you know typically like drums and bass and then overdub guitars or did like scratch guitars yeah and stuff and yeah so so the song Cool Thing, um, it was a song about, really about LL Cool J. Um, like, because um, I, I had to write in the, an article on him for The Voice, and I interviewed him, or maybe it was for Spin, it was for Spin. I interviewed him, and I was really curious when he worked with Rick Rubin on that first record. Yeah. Radio, like how much of the sampling was his idea or what, what was his view on rock or what did he like? And was it all Rick, you know, Rick's kind of input. Yeah. And I was disappointed to find out that Bon Jovi was his favorite rock band. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so that's where I like, it was a little bit like, you know, don't meet your idols or whatever, because you'll be disappointed, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, Thurston had a good point. He was like, well, he probably, they probably like Rick, I think, actually probably. I mean, you know, the big, the, the big chords are good probably for rap, you know, and especially yeah. if I'm minimal, minimal rap. Um, so anyway, <laughs> um, it was my assignment to ask Chuck D if he would do something on Cool Thing in this middle part, which was also a song inspired by, it was inspired by Bootsy, <laughs> Bootsy Collins, mm -hmm. and also Jane Fonda. <laughs> Why, where did, what, were you, who had the fascination with Jane Fonda? I mean, she is a very fascinating character. I mean, yeah. you know, feminist, actress, sex well, it symbol. Was, it was, um, it was sort of about her, I mean, it was me. It was like, um, well, we had done this video uh, with Raymond Pettibone. Uh, me and Thurston were in it, uh, called The Weather Underground. I don't know if you're familiar with Raymond Pettibone's work or his films, but they're hilarious. Like the scripts were amazing. And, and this one, you know, it's a little bit of a twisted view of things. And it was kind of like, I played Bernadette Dorn, Bernadette Dorn, and it was, he sort of made it seem like, like she just really had a crush on you know, like the Black Panthers and kind of like, and there was a Jane Fonda mentioned in the mix, like, uh, yeah, I need to like sleep with a Black Panther. <laughs> <laughs> so that became this kind of, I kind of combined a few ideas. And so I asked Chuck and he surprised me because what he did was perfect, but it was also like maybe the most cliched thing he could do, <laughs> you know, do which you is know? to say like, word up, tell it like it is, <laughs> you know, like, I was like, but it works, you know, sure. uh, uh, it was actually perfect. And uh, yeah, so that was, uh, that was the story of that song. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. 
So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. You, you, so this is your fifth record. Like, how is the band gelling at this point going into that studio session like did you guys have any idea that you were going to be making a record that you know for the most part is going to be one that's talked about uh i mean of course you're not like making something saying this is going to be our big one but did what was the vibe like between the band members um it was good i mean we decided to make a double album (laughs) so and um you know just to fuck with people, I guess. <laughs> That's the basic idea. And uh, yeah, and then we when we did the artwork, we chose um, signs the way Led Zeppelin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we each had a sign. And um, no, but we, it was, um, you know, it's kind of like to quote Jay Mascus, um, <laughs> being in a being in a band and playing music isn't about fun. <laughs> You know, it's it's not really you're not necessarily doing it for fun. <laughs> it's some other maybe that's the way it starts out, or or it's really kind of like um, I don't know, it's like a compulsive desire. You know, like but did a, you have any idea when you were younger that you wanted to to end up in this situation? Uh, no, not at all. In fact, this brings me to so the other day. Um, an old friend and my mentor passed away, this artist, Dan Graham. And he's kind of responsible for changing the course of my life in many ways. Um, he was an artist who, he worked in a lot of media. You know, he wrote, he, he was really like obsessed with music. And he also made sculpture pavilions. And he, he came out of conceptual art. He okay. was and poetry and uh, poetry, then conceptual art. And um, he, in the very beginning, he, um, when I, I met him in California, I moved to New York, I looked him up and I ended up by, uh, living below him because an apartment opened up. And he um, had this, uh, his most kind of famous piece, I guess is this performance piece called um, Audience Mirror per- Performance where he had a, a mirror, like a full wall, like mirror behind him. And he would stand and he would describe the audience looking at him. And then he would turn around and describe himself and his maybe awkward gestures. And he had the habit of talking, like always scratching his head with his finger like this. Um, so he would describe himself in this self-conscious way and the audience behind him. And he had done the piece in, in various situations. And he asked me, he was writing about girls and rock and feminism and stuff. And um, he asked me if I wanted to form an all-girl band to do this performance piece yeah. where we would uh, kind of stop maybe after each song and interact with the audience in some way. Or... So he introduced me to this girl, Miranda, who played bass, um, who's Michael Schamberg's girlfriend, who's made videos and films. And he actually made videos for New Order. And he was in the art world as well. So, and then we asked this girl, Christine Hahn, who was playing in a no-way band called The Static with Glenn Branca um, and Barbara S. Dan also introduced me to No Wave and took, took me to gigs. And, you know, we, um, he, yeah, he was just really into the downtown music scene. Yeah. And so anyway, we, our, our band name was CKM, our initials, and I played guitar and I wrote lyrics taken from um, magazine ads, women's magazine ads and stuff. Yeah. Um, like Cosmopolitan, there's one called Cosmopolitan Girl, which is kind of a talking song. Sure. 
Um, so we did this performance, which according to Dan, we didn't do it correctly. <laughs> like the drummer, Christine, got up and went to the bathroom after one song. Anyway, it was, it was very um, nerve. It was very nerve wracking. But afterwards, I felt like uh, it was it was thrilling. You know, I had this sort of afterglow the next day of having really done something or gone on a new path or what am I going to do now? Because I had moved to New York to, to be an artist. Sure. Anyway, then Christine left because she went to play with uh, this German all-girl band. And we never really found a good replacement. So, But she was playing music with Thurston at the time. And she introduced me to Thurston, who was in this band, The Coachman. And um, we went to their last show, basically. So I started playing with him and this girl, Anna Marinus, who was a keyboardist. And we did that for a while. And then so someone wasn't really working. And we, we asked Lee, who we knew around, if he wanted to join us. Um, anyway, so in a way, Dan kind of set me off on this trajectory of playing music um, and also writing. Like, I, he encouraged me to write. And, uh, yeah. So, and he also introduced me to this German artist who was kind of doing residencies in New York, Isa Ginskin, who was, who married Gerhard Richter, who did the candle painting. So it's weird the way <laughs> Dan- The way it all came together, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of a- All right, so, so- so, so let's let's shift back one to 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 daydream, mm-hmm. uh, because I, I love how you brought up uh, you know some of the stuff that was going on in the scene. What was the music scene like at that time as you started working? Were there bands that were inspiring you or kind of pushing you to, you know, start thinking outside of the box and and just to dive deeper into uh, your sound? Um, not really musically, you know, but you know, Pussy Galore. I think was still happening. Yeah. Gloria yeah. and um, this other band. Um, they're kind of like East Village scum rock scene. Ooh, that's my favorite. <laughs> um, I can't remember the name of them. But I remember like Michael Levine, who took the pictures inside. Um, he was shooting. Um, yeah, yeah, he was shooting a lot of bands and we liked you know, his work a lot. So we asked him to to shoot. I remember it was so hot when we did that shoot walking around in New York. Just really like you can in in the photo on the inside you can really see the grime of New York in a way I feel like in the air. Mm-hmm. Like we were, you know, we've been touring quite a bit. So I think we didn't feel that much a part of the scene at this point anymore. Yeah. So basically, already at that point, you had, you had already figured out your sound and the direction of what you kind of wanted the band to be, right? Well, not really. You know, we <laughs> we never really. I mean, it was it was all very organic. You know, it was very uh, learned by doing. <laughs> yeah. Stuff like, uh, you know, when we first started playing, it was very like, let's get a gig at CB's. There's some talk to Hillary Crystal. Let's get a gig at Danceteria, my club. It's a very gradual. Glenn Bronco started a record label um, backed by this um, guy we knew who ran um, White Columns, which was an alternative space where Thurston curated the Noise Fest. Yeah. It came out of all the clubs kind of closing and nowhere to play. And the owner of uh, Hurrah saying, all the music just sounds like noise. You know? <laughs> Which so noise then was considered a derogatory term, very much so. And um, yeah, but there is like this sort of, um, I think uh, Richard Kern was in a band called the Black Snakes and uh, White Zombie. That's what I was trying to think of. Wait, so you're in the same, you're, so you're in the same like music scene as White Zombie at the time? No, not really. See, we weren't really a part of that scene. Okay. That's what I was, that scene was going on that kind of, um, I didn't realize White Zombie was a scene. <laughs> well, it was like Black Snakes, White Zombie, kind of pussy galore. Sure. Um, 
and other bands that I, you know, I can't really remember. Um, so that was, so that was like 87, maybe. So you start working on this record. Uh, how different was the recording process for this record compared to all the other ones? Where, cause I know this, from what I read, this came out, a lot of this came out from a lot of jams. Like how, how much of this record was just like the four oh. of you are just like in a room, just playing for hours and then like, holy shit, we got something. Well, I mean, we always had kind of two types of songs. Yeah. Um, ones that did come out of just sitting around and playing mm-hmm. and then someone would play something and there's one probably say, oh, that, play that and I'll let me, I'm going to play this. Yeah. And then, so we would, it, it was a lot of um, arranging and arranging and arranging. It was jamming, but it was kind of just, you know, kind of finding what the song is and shaping it. And, um, so because we weren't trying to uh, make conventional three chord chorus, you know, verse chorus. Verse chorus verse, yeah. Springsteen, maybe multiple bridges. Yeah, we had a lot of freedom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it so, sounds like it. And it was fun, you know, and um, like we came up with this idea of the trilogy, you know, which was, was it Kissability and there was a song about the preppy murder in Central Park. I have well, I have some of the lyrical topics. Well, this is what's so cool about this. Do you have a song list on you? Not a, I have, oh, I, yeah, you don't remember all this song? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't remember them. Hold on, let's try this one. Let's just order, do this. I want to try this. remember almost certain sides. Here, wait, yeah. this would be so much fun, Kim. Hold on, this would be so much fun for me and probably for the listeners too. All right, without you looking, what is track seven? Oh, I would never know. No, I wouldn't. I mean, who would know that? I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know this is the record. It was Hey Joni. Okay. But um, so, but, so that was one way of developing the songs. The other was um, Thurston really started bringing in um, a lot of riffs. Yeah. Teenage Riot. And so then we would figure out our parts to it. Um, and structure the song and figure out what it was and stuff like that yeah so that was one of those songs um like if you tell me a lyric i mean tell me a title i can tell you how that song was written let's talk about can we talk about cross the breeze because and i'll be this sincerely besides uh bull in the heather Uh which was kind of like your you know one of your like more mainstream hits uh uh, but like Cross the Breeze was a song off this record that literally stopped me in my tracks and was like, you know, I am a fan of this band now. Like this is this is a song that because every album I do, you know, some stuff hits and I listen to it enough and, and some stuff I've taken with me, mm-hmm. you know, like Look Out Joe by Neil Young. I was like, oh, I'm a Neil Young fan for the rest of my life now. When I heard Cross the Breeze, it, it's just the back and forth, the high, the low, it's like, you know, like, tell me about the making of that song, because I'm quite interested. Like, was that a jam? Um, I think that there was probably like, <laughs> um, <laughs> like it was very uh, influenced by, um, you know, um, it was our, our attempt at metal, <laughs> certainly. Um, nice. <laughs> Wait, are, are you a metal fan? Like, No, but there was... <sighs> I'm sorry, my memory is just... No, so... you're killing it, dude. I can barely hear you anyway, and I have pink eye. Oh, <laughs> Look at me, I'm a freak. <laughs> this, uh, God, it'll come to me. Um, not Metallica, although we like... Megadeth? Slayer. Yeah. Slayer. Fuck yeah, dude. So, yeah, Slayers, we saw them at, um, I think Irving Plaza with their upside-down crosses, and they were great. We were, we were into Slayer. That must have been the same time period. Yeah, I mean, they're, I mean, they're, I think at that, uh, check that out, Adam, where, what album Slayer would be at around that time. So 86 Rain and Blood came out, 1988 South of Heaven came out. So, yeah, dude. So, so, so 86, and that's like their best record. So, I mean, which is so funny to hear that like Thurston and you are, are in the fucking Slayer because just so different scenes, man. Like, well, we were into all kinds of music. That was sure. 
you know, we brought like each of us brought our musical influences as we were forming these songs. Of course. Um, so yeah, we kind of like it was just it was all a vocabulary to be take you know draw from was sort of the idea. Yeah. So 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 when you started writing uh, like Cross the Breeze, how easy did something like that flow out? Who brought the riff in? Actually, how did it start? I think that actually happened um, pretty quickly. Most of the song. Yeah. Yeah. Well, looking at the lyrics from some of your songs, mm-hmm. I mean, you have topics about like burnouts, you have the music industry, you have the crack mm-hmm. epidemic of the late eighties. And I was looking at kind of like what's going on in the world, you know, during that time in 86. I mean, cause I was six, the space shuttle challenger, mm-hmm. uh, what else? The Chernobyl, um, like how, like, I mean, are you guys paying attention to that shit? Is that influencing like what you guys are making? Um, mostly not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, mostly, we wrote a triple album about Chernobyl. <laughs> I mean, definitely like, you know, of course the eighties Reagan. Yes. You know, that was like, a, I mean, the whole hardcore scene was also. Awesome. Yeah. Anti-reg. Um, you know, in a way daydream nation, the title is like, a, you know, basically everyone wanting to escape <laughs> during that time. You know, just like, you know, Reagan's whole thing was like he didn't want to know about poverty or anything that was negative. He just wanted it to be like a Western and like, good guys win, and, you know. Bad guys lose, yeah. But like um, The Sprawl, that's one of my favorite songs to play live. And um, that was really influenced by this book I was reading. In fact, I took some, some lines from there um, called Stars at Noon. Um, and it's, um, the protagonist is in South America and she's, you don't know whether she's a hooker or, or a writer, <laughs> a journalist. Like she, she, yeah, I don't know. I just really, I kind of like, it was sort of when I, there are a few songs where I would write taking on a certain persona basically. And, and it has kind of a nod in there to, um, you know, capitalism <laughs> subtly, <laughs> And what's left behind, you know, the places left behind. What was, what was the easiest song on the record to record? Do you remember? Which one came together the quickest? Um, well, in a way, the sprawl did. I don't know, it just kind of played itself. So you're noodling around, you heard, the, you heard a vibe that you dug, and you were like, wait, keep with that? Or somebody you know, brought it in, kind of fully formed? You know, I think we, we developed it together. I don't know. And, you know, for me, like, it was always difficult because... Um, like the songs that Thurston would come in with riffs, he were the most melodious. <laughs> yeah. And, he, you know, he would have an idea for a, a singing melody line. And so he would typically sing those. And then the weirder songs, <laughs> I would end up singing, you know, and it really gave me kind of renewed admiration for um, Led Zeppelin, <laughs> you know, like having to sing over like big slabs of, like leads and yeah. abstract music it's not easy to come up with stuff unless it's more spoken or sure sure which is you know i'm not a natural singer i'm kind of a non-singer singer so and then we would kind of come in sometimes with fully formed songs that we would then just put texture on and noise so this added more like all the other songs do you remember anything being quite difficult like where you guys were maybe arguing or it just we you spent the most amount of time on something, you know. Well, I mean, the things were mostly that was a mixing situation. Like mixing as a democracy is not fun. Yeah. <laughs> and and Nick really was kind of more like he wasn't a producer. He was an engineer who mixed with, you know, he mixed the record with us. And typically I would probably be I think Steve didn't appreciate <laughs> everyone chiming in about how the drums should sound, but drums affect the whole sound of the song. It's like the bedrock. So that was probably very difficult for him because it's his instrument, but yeah. yet it affects so much of everything else. Yeah. So, so that would probably be the main point of contention. And then, um, you know, Lee and Thurston, like the levels of the guitars, the guitars always got louder and louder, you know, like I think often Thurston would come out feeling like, when the record came out, like he couldn't hear his guitar. And 
you know, just, just things like that. And uh, the bass, of course, you could never hear. <laughs> uh, anyway, so it was always, yeah, like each person. I mean, as we got on making records, I increasingly had an attitude of, I just wanted to sound musical, you know, like close your eyes and think about how it sounds as a whole and what works. It took a long time to, to learn well, hey friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal the Man, to Fat Mike from No Effects, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media. But yeah, that is, is mostly we would argue about. Um, and then, yeah, Lee wanted to remix we spent a lot of time on one of his songs which was why we stayed up all night remixing cool thing because i wasn't happy with the vocal or something or maybe we didn't even mix it i don't, I don't know with the, so where so it, it sounds like you know like you said it's like trying to mix it the democracy is quite difficult but it sounds like in the recording process there's no arguments other than just like ooh, try that i mean did you have any blowouts making this not really i mean you know, Lee, who's very, you know, like, you know, he, he likes to, like, try every certain possibility of the way something could sound. So that, that was, could be a point of contention of, like, yeah. this is taking up a lot of time. Like, because he would definitely try, like, a lot of things and then go back to the way it was or whatever. But whatever, it's, like, some of the times it was good. And it, it wouldn't have been a problem. It's just that we had a time constraint, you know, so... What was the time constraint? Like, how, how much did the label give you with the, and the money? Like, Honestly, like, I don't remember. You don't you know, remember? Like it might have been uh, two weeks. Or- so you're under, you're under the time constraint. You, you're, you're, you're getting it done. I mean, when you, you finish the recording process, you finish the mixing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when, let's talk about, like, track listing. What, like, how did you guys decide in the order of the songs? Like, did you know immediately that you're like, yo, we got to open with Teenage Riot? Because uh, that's you know, and then let's put "Cross the Breeze" on side two, track four. I mean, like yeah, pretty much. I mean, sometimes you know, it just works out time-wise, balancing things out. What do you mean? What do you mean? Like by the length of the song? Um. Well, like you can have only twenty minutes on a side. Oh yeah, so, I didn't even I didn't even think about that. Yeah, we thought of vinyl still. So. Yeah, dude, you guys are like you guys have to. It has to be on vinyl with with. Side. Oh yeah. It's a double album. Dude, I want to fucking hear, now I want to hear this on vinyl. Like, I don't want to hear this on some shitty MP3. Like, oh, I feel yeah. like it's how it's made to be listened to. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so, you know, like the trilogy, that was one side, you know. That's one side completely, um, yeah. Well, no, there's Kissability. Kissability. What do you want to know? What do you want to know about it? Oh, well, no, Kissability was on side four, too. I'm looking at the uh, how yeah, they so wrote it down. Right. Teenage Riot, Silver Rocket, The Sprawl, Side 1, Cross the Breeze, Eric's Trip, Total Trash, Side 2, Side 3, Hey Joni, Providence, Candle, Rain King, uh, and then Side 4, Kissability, and then the Trilogy. Right. Wasn't Kissability part of the Trilogy? I mean, I'm just looking at the way they have it listed here. They have the Trilogy broken up as The Wonder, Hyperstation, and Eliminator. Excuse me, Junior. Oh, yeah, that's right. The Wonder. That's a fun song to play live. Is it? How much of this record? I mean... 
were you guys, you know, have you guys continued to play live? And like, I know you'd mentioned, if I'm not mistaken, I think you said the sprawl was probably one of your favorites to play live. Yeah, DJ Dryat, obviously. Um, Eric's trip. Hey, Joni. Um, Candle. We would play those pretty regularly. Yeah. You know, and then we had like, um, we did a whole tour of Daydream Nation. And that was interesting because that was really hard. It's like, well, these, you know, it was clearly a different time for us in writing because these songs were so intense. Yeah. There's a certain intensity to the whole thing. Yeah, there is. I never really thought came across with a record, but live it was such a different. Oh my God, I would love this. I mean, like, I I would love to see you guys play this record in your in its entirety. Yeah, so those are the songs we Kissability would play, I guess, sometimes. Let's let's talk about after the record. So you finish the recording, mm-hmm. you master it, do the track sequencing put it out into the world did you have any idea or how shocked were you when immediately there's all this critical acclaim and you guys are suddenly because it's like a critical darling yeah it was, it was actually very surprising well one we made a double album <laughs> <laughs> uh I don't know. It was just totally surprising, actually. What surprised you the most? Because, I mean, this is your fifth record. I mean, at this point, you have a following. You're signed to a major label now. It's like that's kind of the evolution of what a band wants. Because, I mean, it's like, I mean, dude, the fact that years later, now it's in the Library of Congress. I mean, that's fucking nuts. Yeah. When you guys are just some band in New York City that's putting this album together, you know, in a basement with Flava Flav. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think in part because, like, we always felt frustrated that we could never duplicate the power of the live sound. And people would say that to us, you know, from, like, and even though we're like, well, yeah, you're listening out of huge speakers, you know, it's a kind yeah. of experience. I don't know if we, we probably just, I don't think I thought of Daydream Nation as, I think we thought it was something special. It was like special to us. And I think at that point, I wasn't really thinking about it in any other place. Or right before this, actually, we had, we had done um, the Whitey album. Yeah. Chicone Youth, which was uh, completely, it was a, we wanted to make a record just made up in the studio, like just mm-hmm. going in and seeing what comes out and just making stuff up. Yeah. And I actually really didn't enjoy that <laughs> experience in fact. I kind of stayed away a lot because they're just like Thurston and Lee just sitting at the board doing shit for hours. I don't know. It just wasn't that much fun. So that's why I did Addicted to Love at a karaoke place on St. Mark's and some other song. Two cool rock chicks listening to Noi in my apartment. Yeah. Um, So that was a weird kind of, I felt like almost a coming apart of of the band for me in a certain way like you say wait did you say coming apart of the band for me in a certain way like it wasn't a, it didn't feel like a so much a band experience you know of like communally making something yeah so when we started writing songs for daydream nation um it was a little bit i don't know you know who knows what's going to happen like it was just like what are we going to do like uh, yeah so you know, it's been, I mean, how long has it been? 36 years later. And, you know, like, like, how do you feel about this record now? I mean, re-listening to it and, you know, the cultural impact that it had. I mean, I couldn't even imagine. Like, I hear so many different bands. Like, I hear Nirvana in this. I hear TV on the radio. It's, there's there's so many artists that, that uh, I didn't even realize are, are literally, you know, growing up with this or are just so inspired by, I mean, like, what are your thoughts on this record now after, after kind of like re-listening to it? I mean, I, I've been listening to it <laughs> for a really long time. That's probably since I listened to the mastering of it. Or really? You, so you just, you do the Johnny Depp style, you make it and you never watch it? Relearning the songs, you know, well, it's just when you, um, start playing the songs live, they take on a different life and they're kind of inside you and it's so sure. Yeah. The feel. Um, but I, I suppose I listened to it when we were relearning how to play it. And I don't know the 
it just the main thing was really how in some way I'm like, okay, it's not as bad as I thought. <laughs> really? <laughs> like my, well, things like my singing, you know, it'll be like, oh, I don't want to hear my voice. Or, yeah. You know, it's just like, okay, it's all right. Um, but some things are kind of cringy to me personally. What's, what, do you, what, do you, what do you find? What do you find cringy? I don't know. I don't remember specifically, but um, just like a certain vulnerability and some. Does it just remind you too much of like, you know, like what was going on? Relationships, love, this, that, the other thing is, or is that it? Or is it just, just the, what, getting older and then looking back at something that you said and like, you know, and instead of me just saying it to somebody, you have it recorded. I think it's just more of like making, you know, like just lyrics or singing that so weird, you know, like just not just kind of unconventional and just, and thinking about the songs as individually, sometimes you don't think of it as a whole record, like until you get an order to record, it's just yeah. a bunch of songs until you get the right order. I find that's kind of almost my favorite part of putting like, it together. Yes. The ordering and, um, I'd have to sit down and like listen to it or something all the way through to feel. Well, can I tell you something? It rules. Okay. It fucking rules. Yeah. Like I'm, I mean it, man. It's I've been doing this podcast three and a half years. I'm not just saying this because you're on the podcast. It's like I get it. Like I get why Sonic Youth is talked about in the discussion of, uh, of I mean, and I I don't even know how to what like alt art rock noise rock whatever i know all those it's just the same shit as calling like grunge music grunge when it's really just the sound of rock and roll in seattle right. um but it creates a vibe to me and especially now that i've lived in la 14 years and i moved to new york it's like it hits different listening to this record in new york on a walk from grand to the west village you know it's it's a very i mean what do you think do you think the city is is a, is a, is another member a fifth member of the band oh yeah definitely i mean yeah the city and its kind of lineage of music you know like yeah. from new music and jazz to no wave and of the velvet underground and, yeah you know tony conrad has anybody told you let me ask you this has anybody has anybody that you know some of the artists that came after you anybody ever come up to you and told you that this record is important inspired them or yeah, sure. I mean, the thing is, is, it wasn't until we relearned the songs and played them live that I understood. There was definitely like, a, yeah, just like such an intensity about the record and yeah, everything that went into those songs that it struck me. I, I understood why people liked it. Yeah. But also like, you know, we were influenced by, uh, we were, you asked about what was going on around the time, but certainly like, Public image. I mean, that was really exciting to hear them and uh, kind of. Um, I hear. You know, what's funny. It's funny that you say that. You're talking about public image LTD. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we. So, I mean, public enemy. Did I say public? Oh, public enemy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I thought you were because I because I don't know. I don't, by public image. Well, public public image LTD. Name. We, we yeah. did we did metal box early on in this podcast, oh, which. In a sense, and I know it's it's so funny that you brought that because I never even would have thought about it. I don't know if they that record influenced you guys at all, but I can hear so many elements of the yeah. raw, the noise, the mm-hmm. I mean. Whereas whereas this record actually has you know choruses and melodies, yeah. Where where metal box fucking is just, I mean, it's noise. But let me be, let me say this after my eighth listen. I said it's it's the punk rock uh, bitches brew and it's a fucking great record. I stand by that, listeners. Yeah, yeah no, that was when we first started. Um, that was they were a huge influence. Yeah, you know? um, I can tell. Definitely not. By the time we did Daydream Nation, I don't think we were we weren't thinking about them, obviously. But just initially when we started, we were listening to them. And um, that's so crazy. It, you know what's so funny, Kim? Is that like. I, you know, I, I talked about doing that record. Like I hated it at first. I think I was like seven record listens in and I was like this just, and then one morning I woke up humming that song pop tunes. And then I put it back on and I was like, this is the greatest record I've ever heard in my life. This is incredible. Yeah. And now I see 
because I was still like, why is that record on the 500 greatest albums list? Right. And then, you know, two and a half, almost three years later, sitting down and talking to you about this album, it, it all makes sense. Without them, there's no you, you know? I think that's really fucking cool. Yeah. I mean, um, I wouldn't give you that much credit. <laughs> I mean, you got you. I mean, I mean, because we were literally, like, it was more like, not that record specifically, actually, but... Um, <laughs> oh, dude, that scared the shit out of me. My God, sorry about that. No, you're good. The dog, to see all three of us collectively jump up when that dog, especially on my headphones, because the audio quality, because this equipment for some reason isn't working properly, it sounded like a fucking bomb. <laughs> Linus, yeah, it's a fierce spark. Linus. That little doodly do. Why Linus? You a big Charlie Brown fan? Yeah. Really? My do you remember Pee Wee's Playhouse? My dog's name is Mecca Lecca High, Mecca Heine Ho. Oh wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I call her Lecca because that Mecca Lecca High, Mecca Heine Ho would, would take forever. Yes. But do you want to hey, I know this is off topic, but Adam Horowitz of the Beastie Boys said Gordon's persona talking about it, he goes, Wherever Kim ends up, she's the coolest person in the room. But, but hold on, it's more. I know her, and I know she'd rather be at home grilling hot dogs. Yeah, I think I remember him saying that. Is that true? Yes. <laughs> I, was gonna, I want to invite you, because I'm doing, are you a stand-up comedy fan? Oh, yeah. Uh, so I have a, I, I, once a month, I come back to L.A., I take over the comedy store uh, main room. Oh, cool. So I do the goddamn comedy jam where comics do stand up. Then they tell a story about a song and then they sing that cover song with a live band. It was a shitty TV show on Comedy Central that nobody watched. Uh, I do it like Bill Burr. Chappelle's done it. Everybody's done it. We did that last night at the comedy store. But tonight at the comedy store, it's me, Anthony Jeselnik, uh, Andrew Santino. I'm doing a main room show. And if you're not grilling hot dogs... (laughs) And you want to come, complete VIP, you get a fucking table to yourself, I'll buy all your drinks, just to be able to say thank you for coming on today, I'm pretty funny, I won't touch you because I have pink eye, unless you want it, you want my pink eye? Uh, no, (laughs) thank you. Dude, how cool would that be, I wish you gave me pink eye. Do you have any, like, do you have rosacea, and then you could, like, give that to me? (laughs) That's very sweet, but I'm I'm recovering from um, Freeze Art Week, and I just... I'm still processing it all. I can't would, dare to be around people. Would right you, now. but I'm going to be coming here once a month to do this, to do the jam yes. in LA. Cool. Um, yeah. Like I'll do it. Like, dude. I, oh, let me know next time. I'm holding you to it, Kim. Okay. Holding you to it. Also, Lekka needs to meet Linus because I have a feeling, dude, dogs rule. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about dogs for 45 more minutes. <laughs> Um, all right, I know we got to get you out of here, so let's see if we got anything else I want to I wanna ask you. My buddy, Big J Okerson, wanted me to ask you about uh, the crossover with Cypress Hill on the Judgment Night soundtrack, which, which, like, was such a fucking cool record, Kim, because, you know, I mean, Adam, maybe you could check this math. Like, I don't even know if, like, Rage Against the Machine has done it, you know, yet. I do know Faith No More did Epic which was, you know, was badass. And, and, and I mean, there were like, maybe it was like the Anthrax, Public Enemy, Bring the Noise, I think probably had come out by that time. But like, mm-hmm. do you have any stories about that? Or do you have any idea that you'd be making the first album of rap and rock together? Um, well, I think it was kind of inspired by that um, Aerosmith and Run DMC, right? Yeah. Fuck, I forgot about that. <laughs> um, we, we were into Cypress Hill. We, we didn't want to make a bad Cypress Hill song. So we let them kind of take the lead. And then it was weird because I think we were expected to just like do our noise bit somehow, which I was not necessarily a whole fan of like the rock and rap thing. I don't feel like it works all the time. Like it's hard to it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't a lot. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, there's I think sat in and I sat in um, the control room with um, Be Real. Be real and um, uh, the other dude, dog. the other guy, yeah, send dog insane in the brain. <laughs> that yeah. dude, that dude rules. There was a lot of ganja smoked listening to like uh, the low end of the kick <laughs> for many hours. 
Like it was really kind of insane. And, um, and yeah, be real laid, you know, he laid something down, I think. And then it was actually Thurston was, he came up with the, the lyric for me and and I did that. It was, it was a nice hook. I thought it's great. Um, and he real was kept getting mad, getting mad at send off. Come on, dude, come up with something, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> he's like, he couldn't. I'm too, like, high. I'm too high. Be real. Too. But um, but anyway, it was fun. Like I, I like the song a lot. I love it. I, I think that album, like, first of all, I mean, I, I don't know if you ever talked to Emilio Estevez. Don't let this get back to him. That movie was straight butt cheeks. The uh, soundtrack to it was uh, fucking, fun- dude, the fucking Mike Patton or Faith No More and Booyah Tribe. Yeah. Oh. I listen to that record. I don't actually remember what the movie was at all. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Movie's about, like, four dudes in downtown L.A. getting lost and being scared of, uh, of people in a lower-class system as them. That's the movie. All right, let's wrap it up. You got friends here. Um, all right, so... So, so Kim, first of all, and I mean that sincerely, like, please come to one of my shows. I would love to meet you. I'd love to entertain you in some way for, uh, it's kind of a way to say thank you because I mean it, man. Like I listened to that record. I've gone back and listened to pretty much all of your records at this point. Well, speaking of which, before we get into the rapid questions, you do, um, if I'm not mistaken, you do have a new record coming out. Yes, you do at issue. Oh, right. We, yeah, that came out this year. Um, a few months ago. Yeah, and then we played together a few weeks ago. Yeah. I mean, he's great. It's just like, um, you know, he's in, uh, kind of a legend in the downtown experimental improv world. And um, we played recently in this cathedral. And um, check it out. It's on a French label. Are there any bands or any artists that you want to recommend to our listeners to check out that, that is inspiring you right now? Um, well, I like a circuit six day year, this, um, woman, Haley, uh-huh. um, she's great. Okay. She's an amazing voice and it's just kind of a, it's an experience for any TV shows you're watching right now. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, you an Ozark fan? You know, people keep, I should try and watch that again. It was so stressful that I stopped. And it's whatever. It's, you know what I realized, Kim? But that's the same show as Breaking Bad. The public likes watching uh, white people that have boring jobs get involved with people with scary jobs. That's that is it's like, let's get a cupcake chef and combine them with the Yakuza and see what happens tonight on Bluetooth. Yeah. I mean, I've been watching Pam and Tommy. (laughs) Dude, my ex-girlfriend is married to Tommy Lee now. Isn't that crazy? Really Amazing. Yeah. And I, uh, what you know I like? Is great. Oh my God, dude, the girl that's playing Pam is killing it. Uh, and if only Tommy Lee would have just paid that dude, the sex tape wouldn't have gotten out there. And yeah. I don't know if you agree with me on this, but the reason the show rules is because they keep showing penis. Like the fact that they can cuss and they keep showing penises, I'm like, this is great because yeah. it's like, it's not some crappy, you know, FX or. Or, you know, like they didn't water it down by, by instead of saying fuck, they say frick. Right, right, right. Let's do, let's do some rapid questions. You can hang out with John. And I, I, Kim, I mean this sincerely. Thank you so much for, um, for coming on. It was great to meet you. And, um, dude, you rule. I, I mean, that's, I, I mean this, Kim, like for real. Like, please come to a show, dude. I do dope shit and I think you're dope and I would love to be friends with you. Especially, I want to find out how you grill hot dogs. <laughs> yeah. I, I, <laughs> I'd like to find out how I do that too. <laughs> um, all right, here we go. I ask, this, I ask these same questions to everybody that's on the, that comes on the podcast. Um, okay. What's your favorite song on this record? Oh, wow. Um, I guess, I guess I would have to say the sprawl. The sprawl. Why? Just every, just the thoughts, the memories. I know, just fun to play live. Like uh, right on. the atmosphere of it. And... Right on, right on. Uh, least favorite song on this record. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I don't have a least favorite. 
I feel like the whole thing as a whole. For sure. For sure. All right. I ask everybody this question. So I'm going to ask you, what song on this record would you fuck to? Oh, probably none of them. <laughs> never fuck to my own music. <laughs> I mean, I mean, but if you, but if you, all right, but how about this? If you had a DJ at Eyes Wide Shut Sex Party and you have to play, they're like, you got to play something off of, of a daydream nation. I'm a big fan of it. Well, what song would you put on for people to have sex to? Um, the wonder. <laughs> um, and last question. I mean, do you think this deserves to be on the 500 greatest albums list? And I know that's weird because one lists are stupid. Um, you know, for the most part, they're never right. This should be lower. This should be higher. It doesn't make a difference, but you know, coming from you, someone that made it, someone that lived it and someone that saw the critical acclaim and, and, you know, 36 years later, I mean, do you, do you feel the impact? Do you feel this is important? And do you think it deserves to be on this list? Um, hell yeah. Fuck yeah, dude. Any follow up or just hell yeah. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say what position. I don't even know what, I don't know, the 500 list. I don't even know what, what that is. What's the number, Adam? So today's episode is number 328. Uh, so right behind you at 329 was James Brown's In the Jungle Groove, and ahead of you is Liz Fair's Exile in um, Guyville. See, that would piss me off. <laughs> <laughs> That's all it's worth. Jesus Dude, but wait, didn't it, didn't it adjust? Didn't it, Adam, didn't it go up? So let's see here. Uh, it did jump 157 spots to 171 on the 2020 re-rank, just ahead of Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water. Paul Simon can cram it with walnuts. Garfunkel's the man. But see, that's what I'm saying. It jumped up because the younger generation made that new list. And so right. they said, As time goes by. Dude, um, let me let you get out of here. Kim, uh, Thank you so much. I can't thank you enough. Anything you want to promote? Anything, please. Oh, man. Oh, I have a, a book I co-edited uh, um, coming out in April. It's a book of essays by different women writers, some authors, and uh, it's with Sinead Gleason. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the title is uh, Women's Work. Right on. Right on. Uh, everybody check it out. Uh, thank you, darling. What did I tell you? What did I tell you? The one and only Kim Gordon. Applause, applause, applause. Standing ovation. Go to Kim Let Gordon on all social media to follow her and go to her website, KimAltheaGordon.com. For listener shout out, I want to give a shout out to Maria Hernandez. I love you, Maria. Uh, I love you so much. It's not even funny. You rule OG Maria Maria. Also... I want to give two shout outs, the notorious RGA Maria and Roger rule so hard on so many levels. They are for real, um, great fans, great friends. I shouldn't even call you fans. You guys are friends at this point and, uh, follow both of them, uh, for new music. We have, Ooh, listener submitted Andrew Bailey. It's his band. Um, junior. You're listening to the song Shotgun Wedding off their 2021 album, Unsolved Mysteries. And you can find links to the music on our website, the500podcast.com. And if you want your songs played on the 500, send us your song to 500podcast at gmail.com and put the album and artist that influenced you in the subject line. Next week is Liz Fair Week, and we're going deep into 1993's Exile in Guyville. Um, should it be ranked higher than this? Well, if you listen to that record, you think Kim doesn't agree. I love you guys. Bye. Yeah.
One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the One Hit Thunder or were nothing more than a one hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to something about the Beatles, now at Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts. Next Chapter Podcasts.